designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. So I remember when I was younger and uh, flesh-colored band-aids came out when I was in elementary school. Or rather, I remember the marketing campaign of flesh-colored band-aids when I was in elementary school. And I just remember how excited I was when I heard about these. Because in my mind, I was thinking that these were going to be the most magical fabric ever. Because I was looking around my classroom and seeing people of all different colors, all different shades. And I was like, oh my gosh, Band-Aids created this magical strip of fabric that's flesh colored and it's going to change with everyone's flesh. So whenever someone puts it on, the fabric's going to change color. And that's amazing. I was so excited to get them. So imagine my disappointment, <laughs> my childhood, my, my little, my child heart broke when I got the flesh colored band-aids and they were Barbie pink. Cause it was at that point when I realized they didn't mean my flesh. They didn't mean all flesh. They meant a very particular swath of people whose color, whose skin color was like that. And it's not even the majority of white people because that's just that pink color is a very weird, <laughs> color of a uh, flesh color. But anyways, uh, the intention of that and in my mind, the intentional exclusion of so many people of color uh, and even some white people for that matter from that flesh colored bandaid uh, was a point in the sand for me that made me realize that who matters and who gets elevated to mainstream varies based on skin color. And I was fortunate to grow up in a very diverse area, but the Band-Aid story and my my memory and my excitement for flesh-colored Band-Aids is something that sticks with me. Preservation makes the gap between space and time disappear unlike any other form of history. 
there is power in preservation. Brent Legs from the National Trust for Historic Preservation. I've been thinking a lot recently about what we use to demarcate the built environment, what we purposely put in our built environment to remind us of the past. So be it statues or cornerstones in buildings that show the date of when the cornerstone was laid, or be it buildings themselves. And I started thinking about this a couple weeks ago when one of my friends, who is a black architect out of Baltimore, posted a Facebook post on an early Sunday morning after working on some historic drawings. He's really shocked to see colored bathrooms on some historic plans that he was working on. We chatted about it, and I remember just being surprised that he was surprised. My surprise came from the fact that as a historic preservation architect, working on a lot of historic buildings, seeing that kind of racism with a capital R, as he called it, was something that I I had just gotten used to and somewhat desensitized from. The idea that we would have the carved space within our buildings to separate races, be it the bathrooms, the entrances, the worship spaces, etc. It was something that I had just taken for granted. So I was grateful for him and for that post and to take a moment to pause. And so recognizing the fact that as a Black architect, as a Black person, there are spaces that have been designed for us to go and not go as long as the country has been around. Um, And it reminds me of Black architects like Julian Abel or Paul Revere Williams, who would design buildings but wouldn't be able to go into the buildings once the buildings were constructed. Uh, Julian Abel designed a number of buildings at Duke University, but he wasn't allowed to go into the buildings once they were constructed. I know Paul Reville Williams had said, uh, taught himself how to sketch upside down because he was a residential architect designing many residences for very wealthy white people in Hollywood. He became known as the like the Hollywood architect. But many of his clients didn't want to have to be near him when he was drawing. So he taught himself how to draw upside down to make his clients more comfortable. And so it's just, it's things like that. And it's the physical gymnastics that we often go through as black architects to make others more comfortable. Thinking about the um, marks on the built environment and Confederate statues have been more in the news as they've been being toppled or removed around the country um, recently. And it's interesting because the Confederate, most of the Confederate statues that were erected were erected during Jim Crow as scare tactics and intimidation tactics. Reconstruction, for those of you who may remember U.S. history, was that brief 12-year period after the Civil War where there was actually a focus on bringing Southern states back into full political participation and guaranteeing the rights to former slaves, defining their relationships between between African Americans and whites in the South. And there was that 12-year period where there was moments of prosperity for many black Americans. Well, Jim Crow came along and that became, that just got washed out. Many of the Confederate statues that were put up were put up during Jim Crow as a way to um, put black people in their place, so to speak, to uh, remind black people that the past and the heroes are the ones who fought for slavery, the ones who fought for the South. And The physical demarcations of space, the act of creation that had to occur 
both in the drawing of creating colored bathrooms on a, in a historic building because the drawing and the act of creation happens with the pencil and it's intentional. Um, the statues and the commissioning of the statues, the location, the construction, all of these things are very intentional. And so it's reminding myself to pay attention to those moments of intentionality in the built environment that were meant to serve as a a signal, a beacon for to let people know who was in and who was out, who was allowed, who was disallowed. And just being mindful of what that meant when it was installed, being mindful of what it means today and what it will mean for the future. So all this to say, uh, as, I, so I've, as I've been thinking and talking through some of the intention, um, is just a, a reminder that design and preservation are not neutral. Uh, it's the intentional decisions about what's preserved, what's memorialized, what's elevated to remembrance and what's valued are things that as designers and preservationists, we have to continue to grapple with, particularly as we're striving to tell a more inclusive history. And using preservation as a form of reconciliation and truth-telling is something that excites me for the future of the field, because it's the power and preservation to really make the gap between space and time disappear, to really tell the story and to serve as proof that these people existed and that this story happened is something that I think more people would benefit from. There's a rich history of contributions to the built environment and numerous people of color who've come before whose contributions have been ignored or pushed aside in favor of centering the white cisgender perspective. And so there are numerous holes in our history And so leaving various holes in our history do a disservice to everyone. And so by really telling more of the full story and showing that, yes, various groups of people have been in this country for a very long time, have contributed to this country, to the building of this country, by not telling the story of the various people of color who have contributed to and built this country, there becomes a um, a cognitive dissonance or a fracture or just a misunderstanding by many white people who think that people of color haven't contributed anything to this country. And that's absolute bullshit. So by telling more of the full history, by actually telling more of the full story and the contributions and using preservation as a way to show the tangible history of things that happened uh, is something that excites me. It's something that I think preservation is uniquely situated to do. That's going to wrap up another episode of Historic and Sustainable. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The featured song that you heard in the episode is a sampling of The Vote by Sarah Gilberg. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging. 
the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day I, i i don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.